That was, uh, what was it an Army base or a Naval base? It was an Army base? Yeah, I want people on, online to hear this. You just have Is this on? Yeah. Yeah, it's on. Well, I was mentioning it. I was in California at the time. I was 17 years old, and um, they, we were out riding a, a Sunday afternoon ride in the car, and we was on Fort Ord, which is one of the biggest military bases and an army base. And the radio broke and said a bulletin that um, we had been bombed at Pearl Harbor. And all military leaves are canceled. Everyone get back to base as soon as possible in whatever manner you can find. Get here. And then the roads were filled up with guys and coming in. But then it was only there, so when they turned around, go in the other direction. And they were shipping out to the Pacific and to Europe. And the guys were looking out the trucks to try to figure out where we're going, you know. But uh, it was quite. I understand that the recruiters uh, had probably the biggest day ever, or the shortly after that. Anybody else want to say, Pete? You want to? Do you remember where you were? I was about eight years old, and uh, I remember that car radios were kind of a new fashion, and, and we were sitting out in a driveway on Sunday morning whenever that, that uh, Roosevelt came on and announced the, the attack. It may have been announced earlier, but it was somewhere around 10 o'clock when I heard it. So everybody was hustling around telling everybody what had gone on. It was 9/11. That was their, uh, the 9/11 of that of that age. Yeah, and then everybody everybody I knew it was uh, 17, 18, even 16 year olds went down and started volunteering, and of course they had to. My brother was turned down at at 16. He had to wait. So, 16. <laughs> Anyhow, they went and volunteered to go, and and uh, he did his he had his chance uh, in Patton's army and a lot of battles later on. Yeah. Mary, you remember where you were? Well, I was six years old, and I remember that uh, we were living in Pineland, Texas, in an old farmhouse, and we were in the kitchen listening to a battery radio, and I just remember my mother and dad crying and being all upset. That's the extent of what I knew about it at that age. How about you, Art? You remember? Just a second. He's going to get you the microphone. I'll get complaints of people not hearing this if I don't get the microphone to you. I was 12 years old and I had, we were on the farm, had the weekend off from 7th grade. Um, I can remember my dad was, uh, played football in high school, <coughs> excuse me, and his whole, uh, thank you, his whole football team went down and uh, enlisted. I don't know if it was the next day or the, that week or whatever. But the, uh, there was a piece in the paper. The whole football team went down and joined the service. I heard that there was over 2,000 people that died in that attack. And, of course, uh, I also understand that there were a lot of people that didn't even know about Pearl Harbor, and they never heard about it until that uh, attack. And so that was, a, as FDR said, a day of infamy. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another day of your grace, another day that we have in the devil's world with no cares and no worries concerning him and what he might do to us, nor his demon legions. We put our sights on your word, your faithfulness, your provision, and your protection. So we pray that you will help us focus and concentrate as we start another uh, subject matter tonight, and that you'll help us to file these things that we learn in long-term memory. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me, I might be clearing my throat a bit. I remember I told you, I think it was a week or so ago, one of the things I saw on TV was a 
a book that <coughs> the, re, the a current pope wrote, and I was describing it to you, but I found it online and thought I would show it to you. That's the, uh, the book. As I, as I said, it has Benedict the Sixteenth up here. This is Roman numerals. Big red letters, Light of the World. Here's his picture. It says, The Pope, the New Church, and the sign, the sign of, uh, what does it say? You can see that better than I can there. <laughs> okay, and signs of the time. Uh, I just, it's hard for me to fathom that somebody would put a book out and with the, with the title, Light of the World, and have their picture on it is beyond me. Also, before we get started, you'll remember last time we were discussing about believers who they understand eternal security, they know they're going to heaven, but they don't care about growing in grace and knowledge. All they care about is that they're going to heaven, that's all that matters. Well, I went to, I think it was, um, I can't remember where I got this. I remember I got it in my notes. But I thought this might be something that, since we were talking about it last week, might be interesting. There are believers who know they have eternal life and are going to heaven, but are not interested in learning Bible doctrine or serving the Lord in any way. The only thing that matters to them is that they make it to heaven. They either ignore or they're ignorant of the following maladies. So I'm going to give you a short list of things you might point out to someone who has a cavalier, nonchalant attitude towards God and His Word. This is especially applies to those who do understand the doctrine of eternal security. And that's all that matters to them. They don't think that they need anything else. So here is the short list. First of all, they're in for self-induced misery from bad decisions. You cannot be void in your soul of Bible doctrine and consistently make good decisions. You're going to make bad decisions, and it's called self-induced misery. You're your own worst enemy. Furthermore, there's going to be confusion and consternation as a result of having no purpose, no courage, no confidence, and no peace of mind. That goes along with being ignorant of Bible doctrine. No purpose, no courage, no confidence, and no peace of mind. Now, those, there are those who have no doctrine that have a measure of courage that they might do something that would be courageous in a moment of time. But over the long haul, the kind of ongoing courage that comes from the strength of Bible doctrine is missing in their life. The third thing is divine discipline. Divine discipline is surely coming their way because we are mandated to assemble ourselves together to grow in grace and knowledge, to show, study to show ourselves approved. These are all mandates. And people who aren't really interested in God and His Word are disobeying these mandates. Whether they know it or not, they're still culpable. The fourth thing is the loss of super grace blessings that could be received in time. Uh, they may have a measure of what the world sees as success, but it's not the success that comes with knowing the Word of God. By the way, that's what we are going to be getting into Sunday morning. We're going to be looking at the success that God promises Joshua and how that success differs from the world's definition of success. So he's losing super grace blessings. He, he'll never know what he lost until he gets to heaven. He never knows what he could have had. And then what is this uh, fifth thing? The danger of dying to sin unto death. God is very serious about Believers obeying Him. And if you want to be a defiant, haughty, in-your-face child of God, then you are in danger of God taking you out early. He'll give you plenty of grace, plenty of time, but when you show 
that you are incorrigible, spiritually speaking, he may very well decide to take you home before the normal time. And then the, <clears throat> the sixth thing, shame at the judgment seat of Christ. I gave you some verses last week that had to do with shame at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't like to be ashamed in front of people, do you? I don't know how many people is going to be there, but we looked at the, at the verses that says there is going to be shame when you stand before Jesus Christ and if you squandered all the grace, all the benefits, all the spiritual dynamics, you wasted your time on earth, there will be shame. And then the last one is loss of eternal rewards. I think probably out of all the whole list, that is the most damaging. The Bible gives us a little bit of information about what our eternal rewards are, but just a little glimpse. But they're, they're spoken of in such terms as we can't even fathom what they are. God loves us with an unbelievable love that we could not even, we can't even understand it. Our minds cannot comprehend the love that God has for us, nor His omnipotence, nor His omniscience. So what He has planned for us is beyond our wildest dreams. That is for those who become winners, those who overcome the devil's world. There is going to be unbelievable, great, Rewards and decorations and privileges and opportunities. Now, for those who don't care about being faithful servants to God during this time on earth, they're going to get to see wonderful things. But they won't be able to participate. They'll probably see the grandeur of some fantastic buildings. But whether they ever see the inside is another question. So this is, this is a few, this is the short list of a few things that people who have that attitude, it's really a poor attitude. They don't care about being faithful servants. They only care about aggrandizing themselves. So I thought I would put that up before we press on because now we are starting something new. So open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, I mean, excuse me, Second Thessalonians. I'm going to be doing that for a while. I've been in First Thessalonians for nearly a year. First of all, we have an introduction. Most theologians agree that the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle from Corinth. He most likely wrote it within a year of writing the first epistle, that it would be what we know as First Thessalonians which would date the letter somewhere around 51 to 54, probably closer to 51, maybe 51, 52. And this, is, this epistle would be Paul's third canonical writing. This is his third writing that became canonical, meaning, meaning it became a part of Scripture. You have Galatians. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians were the earliest written, the earliest things that we have, <coughs> excuse me, date-wise. There were four principal reasons for another letter so soon after the first one. We don't know how long. Some think it may have been just six months after he sent the first letter. But now he's sending another letter. And I'm going to give you four reasons why he wrote another letter so soon after. Would you all rather see the notes up here too while I'm doing this? Okay. Here are the four reasons. First of all, the believers were being persecuted and needed to be encouraged. This is in chapter 1. We all need encouragement, but when you are going through a test, 
when you're, what I like to say sometimes, in the pit, you need all the encouragement you can get. And that's what Paul is going to give them in chapter 1. The second thing is they were being misled as to the day of the Lord and needed to be enlightened. This is in chapter 2. And he already gave them some information about the rapture and Jesus Christ returning. And where would we find that? First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 17. That's where you get the most detailed information in the entire Bible about Christ's return. They were in a dither because they were afraid that those who had died would miss the rapture. And so he straightened out that issue. But now, as we will see as we continue in Second Thessalonians, they had another issue that needed to be straightened out. Because of a letter, a pseudo-letter from Paul, many think that this was, they alleged that a letter came and it was from Paul, but it was not from Paul alleging that the day of the Lord had already begun. Now, that would mean that they missed the rapture and they were in the tribulation. And this would be easy for you to, to understand why they would think that way, because they were under persecution. And there's been several times throughout history where there were countries and people who, who would swear that the tribulation had, had started. One of those cases was in... Great Britain in World War II when they were getting bombed by Germany every day. There were a lot of theologians that were changing their theology and saying, well, no, we are in, this has got to be the tribulation. I read a part in Through the Bible by J. Vernon McGee about a person that he knew that said that the tribulation had happened during World War II. It was a British friend of his. And they were having lunch together. And he still, this was years after the war, uh, they were having, he said, a big steak dinner here in the States. Someone had bought him a big dinner. And he said, the guy still thought that was the tribulation. He said, well, that's the tribulation. He said, we need more of it because, look, here we are having a big steak dinner. Somebody has provided it for us. In other words, after that the dust had cleared, he should have seen that this is going to be a worldwide tribulation, not just in one country. Number three, some stopped working thinking the Lord would return soon and needed correction. This was in chapter 3. So you had some that thought that he had already returned and some thought, well, he's going to return and it's going to be so soon there's no need for us to even work. They quit work. Quit the jobs. And the fourth, the epistle also covers church discipline and suffering. Those are the four major issues as to why the Apostle Paul, again, was writing to the Thessalonians so soon after he had, he had written them before. I have a PowerPoint here that I found on, I don't remember which, where I found this, but it gives us an idea about <coughs> when this was written. Now, the, they wrote it in gray, and I couldn't change the, the labels here. I don't know if you all can see that or not. It's just kind of a timeline and dot. This is an era going on further in the timeline. The first dot here shows the birth of Jesus. Then the crucifixion and resurrection, it says... A.D. 33. Now, I'm just going along with the flow. I'm not going <clears> to <throat> deal with the wrong calendars that we have, but just so we'll have a time frame, so we'll see about when this took place. Then in A.D. 46 and 47, you have Paul's first missionary journey. And then in A.D. 50, you have Paul arrives in Thessalonica. And then in A.D. 51, it says Paul writes 1 Thessalonians from Corinth during his second missionary journey. And I don't know about the 51. Um, when he arrived in Thessalonica, many think that he was only there a couple of weeks to maybe a month. So that doesn't seem like it would be 
that he was there that long a time. This looks like he could have been there a whole year. But he was there a very short time, relatively speaking, enough to set up a church and get things going, and then he pressed on. Of course, he was very concerned of them when he got into Corinth because he didn't spend a lot of time with them. But, boy, they were very good students. They, they understood a lot. And then in A.D. 52, Paul writes Second Thessalonians, probably within six months of his first letter. So I don't know this is within six months, but you got from 50 to 52. Anyway, that kind of gives you an idea about when this took place, when this uh, letter, this epistle was written. Now back to our notes. Unlike other letters, Paul made no assertions of his apostleship or authority in 2 Thessalonians. Instead, he wrote a very personal, gentle letter to the believers in Thessalonica who were suffering for their faith. See, when someone is suffering, you don't want to pile on. There is such a huge difference between Galatians, the book of Galatians, and First and Second Thessalonians. Galatians is probably the most caustic book in the Bible. Paul is ripping them to shreds because they were very legalistic. They were very haughty. There were so many things going on there. And he knew under the ministry of the Holy Spirit when to get on someone's case and when to tread lightly. He's treading lightly here because he's, they need encouragement. So he's, it's a very personal. He had a very personal and close, maybe even an emotional relationship with these people. He urged their continued perseverance, good behavior, love, and faith. He reminded them of Christ's coming, at which time the unbeliever would receive punishment, while the Christian would obtain honor, glory, and eternal presence of Christ Jesus. I got that from the Holman New Testament commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, Volume 9. I don't have the page number, but <clears throat> I thought that was a good insight there. An emphasis is made on the distinction between the rapture and the day of the Lord and when Christ comes to reign. Now, we're going to get into the first and second verse here. But I, was, I had thought, and I came very close, of not going into Second Thessalonians tonight and do a review of First Thessalonians because that has been more or less my trend or custom when I'm finished with a book to go right into it and review. But I didn't do it for a couple reasons. One reason is because First uh, and Second Thessalonians are such short books, short epistles. Second uh, Thessalonians is only three chapters. 1 Thessalonians is only five chapters. And another reason I decided not to do it is because when we go into 2 Thessalonians, we're going to be dealing a lot with the same issues that were dealt with in 1 Thessalonians. Both of these books are eschatological in nature. Both have a lot to do with the future events, the things yet to come. And as we go into especially chapter 2, of Second Thessalonians, that's when I'm going to do some reviewing with regards to the day of the Lord. One of my questions, I was going to kind of give you a little quiz to let you stir your memory banks a bit. I was going to ask you about the day of the Lord. What do you know about the day of the Lord? What is it? And describe it to me. So aren't you glad you didn't get the test? <laughs> But we're going to be dealing with the day of the Lord again in chapter 2, and we will be essentially reviewing then, so I didn't see any need in doing it now. So are you all ready for Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2? Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting is very similar to the one in his first epistle, 
to the Thessalonians. It's nearly identical. There's a few words that are different. At the writing of this letter, Timothy had already returned from his mission to Thessalonica and reported to Paul concerning the condition of the Thessalonian believers. So there's a few things. First of all, Paul in Silvanus. Silvanus is another name for Silas. So that's talking about Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And Timothy had already been sent. Remember the mission? They needed him in Corinth, but they decided, Paul decided he desperately needed some information. So he sent Timothy. Timothy went, came back, reported, and it was a good report, and Paul was given thanks about that. In fact, he does it here also in this, in this scripture. Also, you'll notice in verse 2, every time in the Bible when you see grace to you and peace, every time you see it, grace comes first. He doesn't mix it up. It's never peace and grace. And I think probably the reason he did that is because what has to come before you have peace? you got to have grace. So grace comes first and then the peace. So that was a, a general, typical type of greeting. And so we won't linger long there. Silvanus, also called Silas, was chosen by Paul as a companion after John Mark left him. He was a leading brother and a prophet, according to Acts 15, 22, and 32. The second was Timothy, who was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and who had been brought up in a devout way by his mother and grandmother. This is in 2 Timothy 1, 5. Was, I'm trying to remember, was his grandmother named Eunice? Anybody know? Lois. Okay, Lois. Maybe Eunice was his mother. Just checking. Um, <clears throat> so, he had been brought up in a devout way by his mother and grandmother, which is found in 2 Timothy 1.5. I know somebody's looking at that. They're going to give me a name. Being instructed in the Old Testament Scriptures from childhood. This is found in 2 Timothy 3.14-15. through 15. Now, this part about John Mark, we had Paul and Silas and John Mark going together at one time on a missionary journey, and they were going to go in some really bad areas. And John Mark decided, I think I hear my mommy calling. And he left the group. And there was a huge fallout over it between Paul and Silas. In fact, they split. They, they, they finally came back together. But uh, it was over John Mark. Paul and Barnabas, I'm sorry. I always, I always think that is uh, John Mark. It was Barnabas. John Mark. Okay. Anyway, that was something that, to show that even somebody with the, with the doctrine and the character of someone like um, Paul they still could have a dispute that was major in its... In its uh, I mean, it, it had huge repercussions. Yes, you had a question back there? Okay, Eunice was his mother and Lois was his grandmother. Okay, uh, now, <laughs> I want you to look up here at the board. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 through 12 is actually one sentence. Look at it. That is all one sentence in the Greek. So, I have a few notations here. Verse 3 through 12 is one sentence in the Greek consisting of 213 words. I counted them. I was looking around find, trying to find some source to give me the, the number of the words because it was so massive, and so I just went to the Greek Bible and I started counting the words. 213 words. The New American Standard Version breaks this sentence down into five sentences. There's five periods there. The King James Version breaks it down into six sentences. We will study this sentence in... Ten verses is broken down in the New American Standard Version. I know that my standard 
is to take one sentence and go through the whole thing. Because why do we do that? Because a sentence is a basic unit of thought. And it flows, and when you go through one sentence, you can get the whole thought. But I don't know if Einstein could go through this whole sentence and get the flow just by trying to connect it all together. This, but this says something about Paul. He could put 213 words together in a coherent, I wouldn't say concise, but in a coherent, <laughs> in a coherent fashion to where it made sense. That's because he was a tremendous thinker. He could concentrate and he could just, can you imagine? I don't, I don't know how long it takes to say 213 words, but if he was saying it to you, how much of this do you think you would get? He finished his sentence and what would you look like? I mean, you were just glazed over. So I decided we're just going to take that a verse at a time rather than our standard to go through the entire sentence. 213 words is a bit much. So we go to verse 3. Verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. And I'm, I'm doing something a little bit different here. I'm not exegeting the verse as much because there's nothing in here that is um, astounding with regards to the grammar or the syntax or anything. But I want to just focus on the main things that this verse is saying. So we should take note that faith grows or diminishes. It is not static. That's one of the major points here. How important is the condition of a person's faith? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, we find that Paul sent Timothy to find out about the Thessalonian believers' faith. This was his primary concern, even more than their health and well-being. So if you go to 1 Thessalonians, I don't, you don't have to go there, but I'm just saying, Paul sent him to inquire. What he wanted to find out is not how much persecution are they getting, not are they healthy, not how well are they getting along. I'm sure he reported about those things. The number one thing he wanted to find out was the condition of their faith. Now in this verse, we have, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. Underline that, greatly enlarged. That's one word we are going to look at. I've got a notation from the New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And this is a bit unusual. Usually in the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, all it gives is a verse and parallel verses that you can find that are similar to that verse. But we have a fairly long notation here, which is just really somewhat unusual, and they did a good job, so I thought I would just put it in the notes. The words greatly enlarge is huper akonzo. From two words, you have huper, which means intensive. Actually, we, that comes into the English as hyper. The upsilon there is changed to a Y when they translate it into the English. So that would be hyper. And huper means like above, uh, over, exceeding, whatever. It's very an intensive type thing. Like if a child is what? hyperactive, he's over the top. He's just bouncing off the walls or whatever. And then you have alconso, alconsno, which means to grow, increase. Signifies, as Dr. Clark remarks, to grow luxuriantly as a good and healthy tree in a good soil. And if a fruit tree bearing an abundance of fruit to compensate the labor of the husbandman, now, the husbandman would be like the gardener, the caretaker. I'm going to have to remember that word, and I'm going to ask the young people tomorrow. Anybody know what a husbandman is? <laughs> I'd be curious to find out what they think it is. Faith is one of the seeds of the kingdom. This the apostle had sowed and watered, and God gave an abundant increase. 
Their faith was multiplied and their love abounded. And this was not the case with some distinguished characters only. It was the case with every one of them. For this, the apostle felt himself bound to give continual thanks to God on their behalf as it was meet and right. Meet means it was fitting, it was proper to do so. So he's thanking the Lord for their faith because their faith and your faith and my faith is a very big deal. What you believe matters. Who you trust matters. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15 says, Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand. So he's talking about faith growing. Remember the first point I made was it's not static. You just don't have faith and then that's all there is. It's either increasing or diminishing at any given time. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. This is talking about Jesus Christ reconciled us in his fleshly body through death. That's talking about the cross. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but if you might mark in your Bibles, that is one of the rewards for a mature believer, for a believer who is an overcomer and stands firm to the end, then one of the rewards is that Jesus Christ is going to present you before Him, God the Father, holy and blameless, beyond reproach. Now, what do we have next? If condition. See, that's not everybody's going to do that, but if indeed you continue in the faith firmly, established and steadfast, so once you, as your faith grows, and you, you hopefully it's continuing to grow, you have to be steadfast. You have to, it has to be firmly established. What happens if it's not firmly established? If your faith isn't firmly established, what's going to happen when you're tested? You're going to crumble. And not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Hope. What's the synonym of hope? Confidence. Your confidence is very important, just like the, really another word for faith. <clears throat> so now what does it take for faith to be greatly enlarged? Certainly it's not something that just happens or is automatic. I kind of wish it was, but it's not. Faith is anyone or anything, faith in anyone or anything grows proportionally to the amount of knowledge one has towards the person or the thing. So you have to know something or you have to know someone before you're going to have faith in it. And the more you know it, the more faith you will have in it. So like faith, knowledge is not static. It either grows or diminishes also. 2 Peter 3.18 but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be both uh, glory both now and forever. So you see that, that you grow in knowledge. What else do we have in this verse that grows? Grace. See, there's so many believers out there that think, oh, okay, well, yes, God is gracious. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food and amen and let's eat. And that's about all they know. They don't know anything about how grace can grow because they don't know anything about super grace. They don't even know about logistical grace, much less super grace. But it grows. Knowledge grows, grace grows, and faith grows, or at least has the opportunity to. Colossians 1.10 And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in knowledge of God. Do you know that's a very important verse? Why don't you turn to that in your Bibles? I want you to put a star by that one. I mean, it's not one you hear very often, but it just outlined why we're here is all it did. What's so important, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. 
Isn't this what we should be praying for each other? And we pray, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. You're an ambassador, Lord. We ought to be worthy of that in our behavior, what we say, what we do. And may please Him in every way. That should be our goal. Bearing fruit in every good work. We are commanded to do good work. We are expected to do it. If you're going to be a good and faithful servant, then you're going to have to produce divine good. You're not going to have to. You're going to be just doing it as a part of your growth pattern. Growing in the knowledge of God. See, all of this is predicated upon growing in the knowledge of God. No growing in knowledge, no growing in faith, and no grow, growing in the grace. Okay, y'all got to start. Did y'all start that? Hebrews 11:6. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Nothing is going to grow if you don't believe the last part of that sentence. Well, believe the whole thing, but especially that last part. First of all, you've got to believe that He exists. We're already way past that, hopefully. And that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. If you're earnestly seeking Him, what can you count on? Rewards. When? Now? Yes. Eternity? Yes. It all depends. Are you earnestly seeking Him? If you are earnestly seeking Him... You're going to be growing in faith. You're going to be growing in grace as you grow in knowledge. That's the whole idea. Faith and knowledge are married. You can't have one without the other. If you have faith, it's because you have knowledge. And if you have knowledge, then you're going to have faith. Or at least let me put it this way. That faith... Growing is going to be predicated upon the knowledge. Not only the knowledge that, the, that you learn, but also the knowledge that you keep. And if you don't consistently get it, what's going to happen to that knowledge? Same thing that happened to my knowledge about algebra. Don't ask me anything about algebra. I passed algebra, but it was a long time ago and that had some X's in it. I remember that. X's and Y's in it. X equals Y when this doesn't anyway. It has to be facilitated. You have to keep on refreshing and keeping it new, keeping it fresh. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of, God, by the word of Christ. See how hearing is knowledge. I'm, I'm connecting here faith and knowledge. These are married. Luke eleven twenty seven through 28. And it came about, this is when Christ was teaching and there was a woman's liver out in the group. Y'all will remember this. And it came about while he said these things. Look, while he said it. She didn't wait until he was through. She interrupted him. Can you, can you imagine? She had something more important than the maker of the universe, the Son of God, and so she just interrupted him to do a little pontificating. So while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, and on the contrary here, is so powerful in the Greek. There's uh, different ways to present a negative. This is a, 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 a slam dunk negative. The strongest. On the contrary, you are wrong. You are absolutely wrong. You couldn't be more wrong, is essentially what he's saying. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. Hearing the Word of God is, in context, learning it, acquiring knowledge. Faith is enlarged when one experiences the faithfulness of God. It may also be enlarged through fellow believers who give encouragement to others. When was the last time you gave some encouragement to someone that was down? 
Look at Acts. Well, you don't have to look at it. It's right here. Acts 14.22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So if someone is really getting a double dose of testing, then you can encourage them to continue in the faith. Continue having confidence in God. Don't throw in the towel. That's what I'm noticing more and more in the New Testament. That's essentially what it's saying. Don't give up on God. There's going to be testing. There's going to be suffering. Don't give up your confidence. Your confidence is the engine that drives your spiritual momentum. It's your confidence. So that's what it's talking about is encourage them to continue in the faith. Keep trusting God. Keep taking in the Word. There are going to be those out there that are going to do their, their I don't know, what, I guess you would say their best effort to derail you. It doesn't matter. This is the encouragement they need to know. Faith towards the gospel starts to reach out. Here's a verse. And the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. So we're going to see in a few moments, if we have time, how faith grows. And as a corollary to that, uh, as your faith grows, so does your love towards others. Just like faith and knowledge are married, when you are growing in your faith, the more you know about God, what do you think your behavior towards others is going to do? It's going to reflect what you're learning. You're learning how, what God is like, what the Son of God is like. We are, our job is to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the more we know about Him, the more that we see His example through the Word, the more motivation we have to give it a try. Quit being nasty at least once and give it a try. This is what I like to tell not y'all. You, you are, I'm preaching to the choir here. But there are so many people that have such deep wheel ruts. All they know is when someone offends them, when they are wrong, get them. Undermine them. Hurt them. Make them bleed. This is, this is their motivation. This is normal. That comes naturally. I'd like to say to them, some, uh, just one time, try praying for your enemy. Try giving them kindness and encouragement, all these things, to someone who has done you wrong. And just see what happens. I wonder how many believers go through their whole life and they don't even try it one time. I don't know. Colossians 1.4 Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. You see in that verse two words that we're looking, we're connecting here? Faith and your love for all the saints. Y'all shut your eyes. I've got to scroll for a moment. Don't want to make anybody dizzy. I want to go back to the verse. On this 20 font, I've got to go way up here. Here it is. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. It's right. Why? Because your faith is greatly enlarged. In fact, that's a hypox legomena. In other words, in the Greek, that only happens one time in the whole Bible. That word is used. It's emphasized. It's talking about it is greatly enlarged. This is just, uh, we would say, um, that it's growing exponentially. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. So what we have here is the, as the faith grows, something else. Do you see it in here? There's two things growing here. Faith and love towards others. And what I'm saying is, there's a connection. The more faith you have towards God, the more doctrine you're taking in, the more you are Christ-like because you are trusting the Lord, you're having more and more faith, it's growing, it's not static, then you're going to have more love and your love towards others is going to grow. It's just kind of an automatic thing as your faith enlarges. But you can't do it on your own, can you? When was the last time you tried to be nice to someone under your own power? 
They can sniff it out and smell the hypocrisy right off. Okay, close your eyes again. Let me scroll. I just want to see where I am. It's time for me to end. So we see love here. Faith towards the gospel turns, uh, starts to reach out. And then we have the uh, connection between faith. Did I read Galatians 5, 6? Let me read that one. I read Galatians 4, uh, 1, 4, didn't I? I mean Colossians. Okay. Galatians 5, 6. We'll end on this one. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. See the connection? So it doesn't matter whether you, with the Jews, this was a big deal. Are you a Jew? Are you circumcised? This was a big deal to them. But he said, it doesn't mean a thing. He says, what, uh, what really means anything, what really it's all about is faith working through love. And I'm making the connection in those verse. As your faith grows, so does your love towards fellow believers. If your love towards fellow believers isn't, isn't growing, you know what the problem is? Your faith isn't growing. Your faith, <coughs> excuse me, your faith isn't growing probably because your spiritual momentum has been waning or else maybe it stopped altogether. What happens when someone's spiritual momentum stops altogether? What happens? They quit taking in the Word. There's no knowledge and they stagnate. This faith is dynamic. It's not static. It grows just like faith grows, just like knowledge grows. That's where we're left here is to grow. Okay, that's it. Let's uh, draw a line in the sand there. So we got our first start in Second Thessalonians. And we will uh, continue that Thursday night. Let's close. Father, what a privilege it is to start yet another epistle in the greatest book that there ever has been or ever will be. The danger is that we start taking things for granted, that we lose our vigor, our spiritual momentum. It's vitally important that we stay plugged in, continue to concentrate on the filling of the Holy Spirit, so that our faith can grow, our grace will grow, knowledge grows, all that grows. We're much easier to get along with. And when everyone does that, you have a dynamic church. You have a, a people that has impact. That's what we want to be. So we pray that you will continue to challenge us to stay with it so that we can glorify you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.